Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. And on Wednesday, a huge college football story rocked the nation. Bob Stoops is retiring. Bruce, before we get into that, let's take a quick listen back to an excerpt from our podcast on Monday. Wouldn't it be just the Big 12's luck if Tom Herman gets it rolling in Texas? They're contending for national titles. And Bob Stoops retires at Oklahoma and they fall into to muck. Yeah. If Bob Stoops retires, I, I would imagine that, you know, Lincoln Riley will step in and they will, I don't know if they can do everything Bob Stoops did with you know, all the titles, but I think they have some resources there that'll bode I well for them. I think Bob Stoops goes completely underappreciated and I think maybe won't be fully appreciated until the day he retires. And by the way, he's been buying our property in Chicago. I don't know why, but you know, that leads to conspiracy, conspiracy theories. theories. Okay. Very prescient. <laughs> you are my witness. I had no inkling, no idea that anything like this was coming. Yeah, it created an interesting dynamic. So we'll give, give our listeners a little uh, taste behind the scenes here. After that happened, and it was late in the podcast, and I'm sitting there listening to it and go, oh boy, this is interesting. And then I told you something is going on inside OU. And this was so after we got done recording the podcast and this is Monday, I want to say around lunchtime. And uh, so we had a little discussion Um, as I think I've said this on the radio now. uh, This had been in the works. Obviously, Bob Stoop said he'd been thinking about it for about 10 days before it happened. It started to get a little bit of traction. Um, The questions were going to be initially when I had heard about it, I thought, okay, does this mean he's going to announce he's retiring and then coach for the 2017 season. Then I heard it was not going to be that. Then I heard it was likely it was, you know, Lincoln Riley was going to take over effective immediately. Um, Then there was some of the timing issue and when this was going to come, when he was going to tell the team and everything. And obviously it blew up uh, on Wednesday. So, So there you go. We got a couple tweets and emails from people who who suspected that we might have had some inside info when we had that conversation. And to be clear, I did not when I brought it up. Other than, I didn't have any inside info other than <laughs> that story recently that he was buying up property in Chicago. Um, and that combined with, I think I always knew he was not going to be the type who coached until he was 80 years old. Now, did I think it was going to be at 56? No. But... He never seemed like he was going to be somebody who coached at one school for 30 years. And maybe that was in the back of my head when I brought that up. But no, I didn't have any inside info. You did. And it obviously, you know, is a reason why you immediately threw Lincoln Riley's name out. Yeah. Um, the, the person who I know who knows Bob Stoops the best, I talked to him this week and he said Bob had always told him he thought he would retire around 55 and walk away. He didn't think Bob would ever go back to coaching, you know, would ever, you know, two years from now try to be an NFL coach or anything like that. That was this person's perspective on it. Uh, you know, look, his his father was a successful high school coach in Ohio, died, had a heart attack during a high school game, and then died on his way to the hospital at 54. Bob Stoops is 56. So, you know, the explanation I had been told, you know, early on was he wants to go live life and you know, good for him. Also, as he pointed out in the press conference after the announcement, uh, I thought it was interesting that he was asked and said, 
if he did not think Lincoln Riley was ready at that time, he at would have time ready now. He would have stayed on longer. Um, oh, I'm sorry. You said if he didn't think. Yeah, he if he didn't think. And, you know, and I, I reported this Wednesday, uh, both Bob Stoops and Joe Stigley on the AD had really been grooming Lincoln Riley for this for over a year. Uh, and OU had had known that he had pulled his name out of the Houston job, pulled his name out of consideration at Purdue, uh, at USF, as well as Cincinnati. And I, they had started working last fall on an unprecedented. They'd never given an assistant coach a three-year deal, and that was in the work. So there was a lot of stuff that you know was in the pipeline, which m- made me pretty confident Lincoln was always going to be the guy. It was just a matter of when with Bob. And as he said, there was there's never an ideal time to do this because I mean, if he does it after signing day, then people look at it and go, "Oh, you duped all the kids to sign with you, and you're not even going to be there." Um, I just don't know when, and he even said this, you know, like our colleagues who on FS1 on TV, I saw one of them had said, well, he went through the drudgery of spring football and recruiting, spring recruiting. Well, head coaches don't go out on the road in recruiting now anyway. So I'm, I just don't know when, and when, when a great time for this would have been for him, like where it would have looked ideal. Well, obviously because of the timing of it, people were obviously immediately skeptical suspicious is there something wrong does he have a health problem is there some scandal coming that that he's trying to avoid and if you were looking for that does not appear to be the case but if you were looking for specifics from him at his press conference which by the way was one of the longest like it was he didn't talk for the first time until about a half hour into it i'm not gonna i don't think it's gonna surprise anybody who followed realignment to know that david bourne did most of the talking um and it was a little awkward in that you're trying to both, you know, announce the retirement of this, you know, iconic coach and, and salute him. And in the same breath, introduce your new coach. It was just a lot to get done. But anyway, if you were looking for any sort of specifics from him about why, you know, you didn't get them. He basically said it's a somebody asked him a question that threw out all of those different factors, including what you mentioned about his dad. And he said, well, that's personal. I'm not going to get into it. Other than, you know, what you said, that he felt very confident about Lincoln Riley taking over. Um, and that I guess that shouldn't surprise us. I mean, you and I have covered Bob Stoops began at Oklahoma the same year that I basically began as a sports writer. So I have followed his entire tenure there and he was never one to let his guard down. I think that's fair to say, right? Like, yes, he was kind of not, not, not with not with the media, certainly. Yeah. So. I guess it's not surprising that he wouldn't show up at this press conference and, and pour his, his heart out. Uh, uh, other than saying, I, I thought the, the most um, kind of human moment of it was when he said, you know, I don't have a plan. I, there's not some, there, there's nothing that I currently he used the word He used the word frightening, which is not a word coaches usually use, football coaches. Yeah, he said it's a bit frightening, but he said I'm a spiritual person and I believe that, you know, you don't know... Uh, you don't know what your path is going to be until you try it, and we'll see what happens. I, you know, there's part of me that says we've seen other coaches do this, try to walk away and realize after a year or two it's just too much a part of their blood and they come back. And in his case, um, while I don't believe that's going to entail, I happened to turn on Paul Feinbaum's show at one point shortly after the news came out, and, and not one, but more than one caller 
said he's going to take over when Ole Miss has to fire Hugh Freeze. Yeah, that um, makes no sense. That makes absolutely that's not, no sense. That's not going to happen. Nor is he going to be the next Notre Dame coach, as so many people believe, because he bought a house in Chicago. That would be a very Ooh. long commute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. He bought houses in Chicago, so he's going to coach at Notre Dame. It's yeah. not down the road. I mean, it's a, that's maybe, a they, maybe he could helicopter in. The um, the thing that you know, look, and you never say never, but there's a the, when you said what you said a couple of minutes ago about you know coaches come back, especially when they retire in their fifties or around there. The first name that obviously comes into mind is Urban Meyer. Bob Stoops is not Urban Meyer. Um, you know, they're wired very differently. I mean, they're both great coaches, but Urban Meyer. When you talk to guys who worked for him, they talk about the grind, and Urban is on them, and it's constant, and it's you know it can be exhausting. And it can, you know, you just, you always hear about that. When you talk to guys who work for Bob Stoops, and I've heard this from multiple people, he is the best boss they probably ever had. And the best PR spin I ever got about Bob Stoops actually came from, came a year ago from one of his assistant's wives. And it was completely unprompted. And she was just talking about how good Bob Stoops is to coach his wives and coach his families. And... You know, you want to say after hearing it, and I heard all these examples of it and everything, um, you want to say, well, why aren't more coaches like this? And you know what? I mean, that's just how he was. And I think he took some of that from Steve Spurrier, who had a big influence on him, probably a lot more than he took from in that regard from his other boss, Bill Snyder, who is more of the grinder type and was tougher to work for. And maybe that reflects, you know, his outlook on on uh, life after football, I think. He was one of the first coaches, if not the first coach, at least in our time, that I heard of who specifically carved into the schedule during the season a family night. So, you know, a lot of places during season you you work, you know, you're there first thing in the morning, you're there till late at night. Some guys sleep on their couch. Uh, he carved out at least one night a week that wives and, and kids could come into the office and, you know, make sure they get to spend some time with the coach. Dabo Swinney does that at Clemson. You know, I'm not saying he's the only one that does that, but it was to me a pretty interesting window into exactly what you're saying about how the kind of culture he had there. You know, another interesting window I'll give you. I I remember visiting there probably four or five years ago. And, you know, you go into the people's offices and football buildings and they have so much stuff on the walls, usually whether it's you know trophies obviously but also you know whatever they think re- recruits are going to notice first so oftentimes that is pictures of their players that are now in the NFL or you know listing off we've had 78 all-americans and 52 you know what i mean mm-hmm. i can't remember if it was in his office i think it was the hallway right outside his office. you've been there more recently you may have seen this I mean, he has all these pictures from their bowl trips over the years not of the bowl games but of like them you know, at a water park or that, you know, the, the activities, the team bonding things that they get to do outside of the games. I thought that was pretty interesting because that's not something that most people like. I mean, if anything, in this day and age, I think people like roll their eyes like, oh, yeah, bowl activities, whatever. That it was that important to him, that those moments were that important to him to p- feature so prominently. Yeah, good point. You know, that is a, a good uh, piece of it. Um for you as covering Bob Stoops, what do you think it was like? Or what was it like covering Bob Stoops for you? Kind of what I said earlier, you know, 
he he was he could be surly he could be very defensive there were certain topics though that if you got him that he was more interested in talking about than others you know one thing that was interesting about bob stoops and others have written that since his retirement announcement is that he was a defensive coach and yet when he got there the first thing he did was hire mike leach as his offensive coordinator and made it clear that like he wanted to be he wanted to attack on offense he didn't want to play ball control and and we're going to win 13 to 10. So, and that continued pretty much throughout his entire tenure. So, you remember that 2008 team that set a record, averaged 51 points a game, uh, 60 point plus 60 plus points five games in a row. I actually called him pretty early in that season when it became apparent that that's the kind of team they were going to be to do a story on this exact angle. And that was the most like open and loquacious I think I ever got him. He was just very proud of that, I think, that he had made that a hallmark of his coaching style. But in general, you know, he was not somebody you were going to buddy-buddy up with. Uh, I do appreciate that he, he, you know, gave me the access that he did a few times and made it clear that he respected my work. And, I mean, all in all, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know what you would say, but, like, for a guy who became as successful and as prominent as he did, you know, all in all, you look back at his tenure and I think people are going to remember it to be overwhelmingly positive. I mean, no question. Look, before he got there, they, this proud program had had five years in a row. They didn't even have a winning season. And then by year two, they win a national title, you know, and as I, when I was a senior in college in 1997, Northwestern played, remember the pigskin classic? It was that the one in New Jersey. At the, no, at that, the was the, that was the kickoff classic. The pigskin classic kind of moved around. But, you know, this was Northwestern coming off like the Rose Bowl season and the Citrus Bowl season and having this big breakthrough. So they played the pigskin classic in Soldier Field against Oklahoma. John Blake, Oklahoma. Northwestern won 24 nothing, and it wasn't remotely surprising to anyone. That is how far Oklahoma had sunk at that point. Wow. Wow. Um where would you rank him on the coaches you've you've covered over this generation of you know we did this the other day we're talking great players um i know we talk about our list and i feel like it's a very fluid list depending on the season but putting into context you know 10 and you kind of did this on unprompted on monday but 10 big 12 titles six time big 12 coach of the year by the way for him to win the coach big 12 coach of the year you know maybe this is just how kind of backwards the Big Ten is on this. But, you know, like no one in Ohio State's allowed yeah. to win the coach of the yeah. year. And here's the coach at Ohio at Oklahoma who's won it won it six times. So knowing that and knowing how a lot of times, look, you know, he had some dips, but he left with back-to-back Big 12 titles. Uh, this wasn't like going out and he leaves behind a really good team for, for his protege, Lincoln Riley. This isn't a case of Mac Brown, um, you know, I, I would have to say, you know, he's the best coach of the Big 12 era, certainly. Right? Well, my column immediately after the announcement was that and, and it actually is something that we've talked about on the podcast. And a lot of people in the last 24 hours have written in and brought this up. Remember, we had a discussion a little while back, I think, in response to a mail. Yeah. In response to a mailbag question about just how rare it is that a coach actually goes out on his own terms. Like it almost you're the one actually who said it almost always ends badly. And here is a rare example of a coach who went out on top and almost didn't because just two years ago, pre-Lincoln Riley, pre-Baker Mayfield, 
it was you know the low point of his tenure. They had just finished eight and five, and got just embarrassed in that bowl game against Clemson. And it was you know I remember watching that game. They couldn't move the ball. They almost got shut out. It was forty to six was the final score. And to add insult to injury, Deshaun Watson was hurt, and Cole Stout was playing quarterback for Clemson. So it was just like the low point of his tenure, I think. Yes, they got blown out by USC in the national championship, but that was a national championship. I love how our podcast, you can get the random Cole Stout. I did not see that one coming this morning. <laughs> no, so uh, good point. So then he has to fire Josh Heupel, the star quarterback of his own national championship team, and Jay Norvell, who I know he really likes, and, uh, and bring in Lincoln Riley. And I was there that following spring, and you talk about him being defensive. You know, He indulged me for a little bit about kind of the challenges facing his program at that time, but... Pretty soon it got to, you know, hey, I've won, I guess at that time, eight big 12 titles. I know what I'm doing. Um, but he built it back up. Playoff berth that se- next season, 11-2 um, and two last year, finished third in the country. Okay, getting back to your original question. You know, I do think we underappreciated him at times. And, in fact, you are, you're always asking me about that top 20 coaches list I did going into last season. I pulled it back up. He was eighth. I feel a little embarrassed about that now, especially when you look at some of the guys who are above him. But in our time, like if you say back to the start of this century, basically, I mean, I don't think there's any question. It's Saban, Meyer, Stoops. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I saw Paul Meyer work from USA Today, had him fourth and had Chris Peterson third. It's it's right there. I mean, look, Chris Peterson has, hasn't been dealing with the same uh, resources as the other guys, and he's he's worked wonders with it. Maybe, yeah, two, these aren't, maybe two years from now, we'll say I, I would feel stronger about and say Chris Peterson, yeah, would be that yeah. would be there. At this point, I think I would I would give Bob Stoops, given how bad Oklahoma was before he took over. So I want to turn to Lincoln Riley. And, you know, you know him well. And by all accounts, very sharp coach. You know, no surprise that they elevated him. And in fact, this hasn't really been talked about at all, but like the fact that he anointed him over his own brother, who's the defensive coordinator, really says something about how much faith he has in him. Um, But I got to tell you, I don't like his chances. Not because I don't think he's a good coach. And I wrote this, I put this up uh, right before we recorded this. You are having to replace the all-time winningest coach, a coach who, as we've said, won almost 80% of his games, a national championship, 10 Big 12 titles, at a glamour program. So I went and did the research. I took the 13 schools who I listed as kings. And, you know, and that doesn't count Nebraska and, and Frank Solich replacing Tom Osborne. But almost every occasion, this did not go well for the successor. Did you did you have to see this? I did. Um, by the way, you, you probably threw Miami fans for a loop when they saw Andy Gustafson's name up there. <laughs> well, I, was, I assumed it was going to be Schnellenberger, but it's not. All-time winningest coach at this school. I mean, so here's just a couple stats. If you haven't read the column, you should read the column because I want you to read the column. <laughs> the I went with median, not average, because like somebody like Joe Paterno really throws off the average in terms of how long <laughs> he stayed. Um, so the median coach on that list of those 13 schools stayed 20 years at his school. The, success, the median successor stayed five. The... The median all-time winningest coach won 75% of his games. The median successor won 65%. And But most importantly, out of the 13, 10 of them were fired or resigned under pressure. The only exceptions. 
John Robinson, who actually had a phenomenal run after John McKay at USC the first time, left for the Rams, eventually came back to USC, did get fired the second time. Bill O'Brien, who left after two years at Penn State. I don't think we had a good litmus test on that one. And then the one kind of shining exception to this, and the guy who I assume Lincoln Riley hopes he'll be more like, Jimbo Fisher. Yeah, I'm curious. How many of those examples were guys who were already in the system and promoted from within? I mean, to be clear, so so I focused on these glamour programs because that's where the expectations are just through the roof. I mean, mm-hmm. Bob Stoops for everything he did there, there he had a lot of he had a lot of critics. He had a lot of people who, uh, you know, he wore out his welcome on at some point. It's probably around the time that they. I mean, some of them as early as like when that Jason White team got humbled by Kansas State in the Big 12 title game. If not that, uh, you know, the first time that they only went eight and four. Uh, or, or the fact that he lost some Texas games he had no business losing down the stretch. After that Clemson loss, John Hoover, Tulsa World columnist, has been there a long time, knows that program as well as anybody, actually wrote a column, the headline of which was, it's time for Bob Stoops to go. It did reach that point, at least for some people. And so that is the bar Lincoln Riley is going to be measured by. I think the only way he he will please people is if he wins a national title within the first couple of years. Yeah, look, the bar is, as you said, incredibly high. The other thing is you never you really don't want to replace the legend. You want to be the guy who replaces the you guy. You want to be the guy after the guy. So another storyline here. How intriguing is it to you that the Red River rivals are both going to have new coaches to start 2017? Oh, I think it's I think it's very compelling. Uh, Chris Viani had a great Vanini, I'm sorry, had a great tweet or comment about how if you combine the ages of Lincoln Riley and Tom Herman, you get 75, which is two, still two years younger <laughs> than Bill Snyder. Jeez, you also get two guys who are very, um, and I know the Big Twelve is already a conference full of offensive gurus like Dana Holgerson and. Gundy and and at least at one point Cliff Kingsbury, uh, I guess he still is an offensive guru. He's not yeah. a defensive guru. You've got two guys who are who are known for that. So I, I think it's fun. It energizes the rivalry. Remember, Bob Stoops and and uh, Mac Brown started at their schools within a year of each other. And I was looking back at it. It's pretty amazing now with some distance. That was such a it's such an important and, and relevant rivalry for an entire decade. Literally, from 2000 through 2009, either Oklahoma or Texas played in the Big 12 championship game every single year. And I believe like six of the nine or seven played for the national championship or went into the Big 12 title game with a chance to play for the national championship. So it was basically Woody versus Bo. And, could, you know, we'll see if that's, if that's going to be Herman Riley or if it's going to be something really you know, short of that. But uh, yeah, I think that's a compelling storyline. Did you make a, and this is something I wrote about on Wednesday, uh, Lincoln Riley's 33. In my mind, sometimes I don't even, don't even think of him as that old just because the first time I'd actually interacted with him was back, I was in Lubbock and he was, he was uh, basically, I think, 19 years old. He was a student assistant. But if you look at the OU history, it's very interesting when it comes to hiring young coaches. Bud Wilkinson was 31 when he was promoted to the head coaching job. Chuck Fairbanks, 34. Barry Switzer, 36. And Bob Stoops was 39. That's pretty amazing that they, you know, I never, I didn't realize Bud Wilkinson was that young, but all those guys were really young, at least by coaching standards, to get such a big job. 
And Bud Wilkinson coached there 17 years and retired at 49. So, which, you know, Stoops is an old man compared to when he retired. Um, one other thing I want to bring up. If this had ha- announcement had happened in December or early January, I believe one of the first things that would have been mentioned is Joe Mixon. Uh, I even thought to myself, huh, I wonder if he delayed this until June to get a little bit of distance from that. And then I was like, eh, I don't think so. I don't, he I don't think Bob's, yeah, I don't think Bob Stoops cares much about media perception and things, thinks about things like that. I really don't. But how does, and it all happened toward the end, this period of taking on Doriel Green Beckham. He had Frank Shannon, who was suspended for a year for, um, you know, after being arrested. And then, of course, Joe Mixon, which was really the big stain. You know, in the end of the day, how how much should that impact his legacy? It's an interesting question. I thought about it. I think this was from, you know, Andy Staples' column about it. And he, he brought that up, too, saying, you know, Bob Stoops, who he had actually played for when he was a walk-on at Florida, um, it changed the way he thought of him. You know, these these decisions he made regarding these guys. And you and I have talked about this, at least offline. You know, Tom Osborne and Andy references in the column. I remember watching, there was a documentary on Lawrence Phillips that aired in the last year. And if that had happened now, Tom Osborne wouldn't have left N- Nebraska the way he did. I mean, I don't, I don't think he would have survived that. I mean, it was seemed to be much more damning even than, than the stuff we're talking about here. And I think we are we're looking at people through a much different lens than than you know than that era certainly, and so I don't know. I think that it's certainly you know going to be a part of him, especially because, like you said, it happened late in his tenure. It's not like it happened in year three, you know. And one of the things that was kind of a interesting dynamic to all this. I remember you remember the name Rhett Bomar. Oh yeah. Like Rhett Barmore was five-star quarterback. Everything was supposed to be the future. And from what I had always heard, as soon as Stoops heard he did something wrong, Stoops ran him out of there like without thinking twice. I know. And, and, it, and, it, and that was despite the fact it could have – I mean it could have ruined – they were already coming off. That was their first down year. And, uh, you know, you, you – whoa, shoot. What was the – so the thought was, oh, my gosh, he just did that and, and possibly blew up his season. That was the guy they were counting on. What was the name of the guy? Paul Thompson. Paul Thompson, who had moved to receiver, they moved him back to quarterback at the start of preseason camp. Not to be confused with Lewis Baker, even though they both wore the same number 12. And that led to a very awkward virtual media day. (laughs) Threw in some random. It's funny when you think back to these things, some of the random names that come out. So. This is an enormous story. I don't think you can underplay it. You know, this is one of the, we just said he's the, at worst the third best, at worst the fourth best, but probably the third best coach of the time we've been covering this, stepping away uh, on the eve of the season. Anything else we want to address here? No, I had a question for, I have a question for you offline, but I'm not. Oh, uh, great. Now people are going to okay, right, hiding I'm, more I'm inside information this. from them. Uh, we both, we both also covered Steve Spurrier. This is his mentor. Do you put Bob Stoops ahead of Steve Spurrier? I do. Uh, there's a lot of... Hmm, how do I say this? Steve Spurrier had an amazing run at Florida. No question about it. Um, the guy won four straight SEC championships at one point, And his offense was very revolutionary. 
it's actually surprising though. Like when I was doing the research for this story that went up, I mean, he is the uh, winningest coach of Florida. He was the coach there for twelve seasons. Doesn't it seem longer in your mind? Twelve years is a long time though, Stu. Twelve years is a long time, but Stoops is retiring after eighteen. I would also say that I don't know. It's very close. What would you say? Um, it is very close. Here's this is a this is something that I think carries weight. Steve Spurrier was a conference coach of the year in major conference, ACC and SEC, nine times. You know that's hefty. Um, I think as I think about it more, the fact that he won at three schools, including well, Florida hadn't been a national power before he got there, but also you know that one at Duke and one at South Carolina, those schools are not used to that. You know, yeah, you probably do have to give the nod to Spurrier. All right. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I think his, his resume is very hefty. I used to say the best accomplishment he had is he won at Duke, but then David Cutcliffe went in there at a much tougher situation to win at Duke because of, you know, there are more heavyweights in the conference football wise now, but yeah, you got it. I mean, I'm just looking at his, his time at Florida these top 10 rankings, he goes 7, 10, 5, 7, 2, 1, 4, 5. Then there's a 12, a 10, and a 3. I mean, he left on a 3. And then, you know, Lou Holtz never could do at South Carolina what he did. Sure. Okay, it's Spurrier. You've got, you've sold me. All right, so there are other things college football people want to know about. So we go to the mailbag. It's the mailbag from a computer. So not literally a bag, but just mail. As always, you can send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. An interesting thing happened for me this week. You know, I do still write a mailbag, and I uh, put out a call for questions on Twitter to my Fox email address. And most of the, not most, but a lot of the questions I got were addressed to both of us. They just assumed I was asking for the podcast mailbag. Could it be that the podcast mailbag has usurped my written mailbag in popularity. Oh, thank you, listeners. That That is a compliment. I take that as a big compliment. Our first question comes from Jim Swarthout, Bruce. Do you know who that is? Yeah, he was uh, he was big in ball bearings. Yeah, all right. <laughs> there you go. Great Fletch reference. Why is it that you and Bruce have decided it's harder and a greater accomplishment for coaches to win national championships in the playoff era? Allowing four teams gives Nick Saban at least one regular season loss pass. How many national championships would Bobby Bowden, Steve Spurrier, or Pete Carroll have won in a similar format? That's a good question. That is a really good question. Well, I would agree with one part of it, which is you definitely have more access in this system. And unless, you know, when Bob Stoops came up, you know, we're talking about Bob Stoops, and you think back to that 2008 season where, you know, I said that's probably his best team. And they arguably, you could make an argument they shouldn't even have been in the Big 12 title game because they lost to Texas. It was that weird three-way tie right. with Texas and Texas Tech. With the BCS, there was always this kind of arbitrary feeling to it like that, like of which two teams got in as opposed to the others. To this point, it hasn't felt that way with the playoff. I'm not saying it won't at some point. but uh, So you definitely have more access. But I think, I mean, I don't actually remember when we addressed this, but... Oh, I know. Okay, so when I say it's... I, I have said it's harder for... I want to clarify. I have said that I believe it's harder for a non-Blue Blood to win in this era because they don't generally recruit at the same level as Alabama, Ohio State, etc. So they can have a great season, like Michigan State a couple years ago. 
But then they get into a four-game playoff where they have to beat not one but two teams that recruit at that high level. I'm glad that's a lot harder. I'm glad you used that example that you did because you use the term not uh, you know non-blue blood as opposed to when I first heard you go on that road. I thought you were talking about like a Boise State kind of program, no, which they don't, think, which they don't have the access to get in if it's two teams. So right, at least I think it's a, harder for Oregon. I think it's harder for Michigan State. I think it's harder for what's another good example Stanford any of these teams that are actually real pretty good on a year-to-year basis but by no means recruit at the same level as Alabama Ohio State USC I'm going to disagree with you I feel like Stanford's recruiting at those levels Stanford was a bad example in terms of recruiting Stanford does recruit maybe not quite at the nobody recruits at the level of Alabama but yes especially this past year they definitely recruited at a high level uh who, I don't know. Who's a better example? Uh, Oklahoma State doesn't recruit at that level. Oklahoma State, great example. And Oklahoma State came very close to playing in the BCS title game a few years ago. That's the that's the kind of schools I'm talking about. I don't necessarily think it's harder for Alabama or USC to win the national title in this era, other than it's harder for everybody because of 85 scholarship limits and 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 playing more games and several other factors than it was for Bear Bryant or Bud Wilkinson or any of those guys you want to talk about in an earlier era. Okay, Justin, Polk City, Iowa, Bruce and Stu. Your talk on Tennessee and Alabama got me thinking about rivalries that could or should cease. I'm a Hawkeye fan who always hears the argument about how Iowa has nothing to gain prestige-wise by playing Iowa State and should beat them but has a tough time with them because Cyclone coaches really get them up to play. It does seem like Iowa State pulls off a lot of upsets in that rivalry. If you were each the AD of a school, what is a rivalry game you would cancel due to the danger it presents for an upset for your team? Oh, that's a great question. That is. Um, Well, there'd have to be like a big brother, little brother dynamic. You know, if I'm Florida, Florida State, you know, if I'm the head coach, and it obviously is a tough game to, to get around, but it's not like a... You know, you have no, 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 nothing to gain by beating them. Um, I'm sure there's a part of Michigan that would rather not have to play Michigan State because they, because a, they feel Ohio State is their big rival, and b, they do think that of Michigan State as the little brother, as we know. Yeah, I'm thinking about this like that. Iowa, Iowa State is a good example because at a conference game, um, you know, if you're Colorado, do you want to play Colorado State all the time? They're from a they're from a non power five conference. They have been they have been pretty dangerous at times, and I don't think you want to be on a level playing field recruiting with them or give them any more ammunition. Is there any other example? I hate to have to do this off the top of our head of a power power five school whose main rival is a non power five school. I mean Utah's rival is BYU, but I they, I don't consider them non power five. Uh, there's a little bit of a Utah State rivalry there, but not. I don't even think they necessarily play every year. Right. That that is that is somebody will come tell us if we're not thinking of one, but that is pretty unique. Yeah, let me see. I mean, at one point Louisville wasn't in the uh, Power Five, but no, for Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Up until you're right. Up until recently, that would have qualified as as that. Moving along, Stu and Bruce from Josh in Tampa. This year, the Huskers have a QB in Tanner Lee, who Bruce seems to like, who can run the style of offense that Mike Riley and offensive coordinator Danny Langsdorf prefer. And they're also switching to a 3-4 defense under Bob Diaco. Could 2017 be a, quote, reset year for the Huskers before taking a large jump 
in 2018. Uh, reset from what? I feel like they they should consider that this. There's no reason why they shouldn't progress this year. That it would be a disappointment if they don't. This has been a program that had a rough first year in O'Reilly, got better last year. Why why should 2017 be? Why should they get a pass in 2017? No, I agree. I think they are. I think their stock is trending upwards. I also think they are recruiting very well. You know, they made a big, big hire uh, bringing Dante Williams from Arizona. He is a really good West Coast recruiter, and I think he's helped them a lot. Uh, you know, it'd be big if they could. You know, they. I mean, they play Oregon week two. It's at Oregon. Obviously, Oregon's coming off a bad year, um, but I think that's a game where there'll be some some opportunity for people to say, okay, you went in and thumped a Pac-12 school. Whereas you remember a couple of years ago, they played UCLA. I think it was maybe Brett Hundley's last year and they were winning the game. And then all of a sudden UCLA just took it to them in the second half. I just feel like it's been a while since Nebraska has had that. Now having you know, said what I just said, Nebraska top 10 recruiting class right now as it stands. I mean, I do think there is some momentum from Mike Riley that is going in the right direction, especially if Tanner Lee is as good as I think he is. I mean, I think that will, uh, you know, I think that'll give them some identity for a program that really has, they used to have such an identity that kind of lost it, right? Doesn't it feel like Nebraska doesn't really have much of an identity at this point? I, I believe we've talked about that a lot. Yes, it definitely doesn't feel like they have an identity. They obviously had a, a, a very noticeable one for like 40 years. Um, you know, basically until they hired Bill Callahan. So I've said at the time they hired Mike Riley, I'm trying to remember now, you know, obviously there was some thought they would hire Scott Frost and Scott Frost never even got a look for that job. But I remember thinking that might be a good idea because if you're in Nebraska and you're trying to differentiate, differentiate yourself in this day and age, Running the what was then the you know unquestionably powerful Oregon offense would be a way to do that to become like the Oregon of the Midwest. All right, we have a question that is kind of heavy, and it's one of these evergreen questions that like we could probably devote a whole podcast to. So I'm going to ask it to you. You can see if we can answer it in two minutes. Ready? Robert Lewis Hastings, dear Stuart and Bruce, where do you fall in the debate of whether NCAA football players should be paid? What about other NCAA athletes? This is, comes back to my original, my, you know, I brought this up before years ago, I do a podcast or do a, uh, an interview with Myron Roll, And we talked about, should they get play? He's at Florida state at the time. Should you pay all athletes? And I said, well, do you pay the track athletes? And he said, yeah, the, the most successful athletes we have. And then it starts getting to like, I would be in favor of paying, paying college athletes. The problem is. I have not heard like people are so one or the other that you never get to the dialogue. If logistically it could be done where you're not paying the football players at Auburn more than you're playing the football players at Troy, which is also an FBS program. Um, then I think it makes sense. Cause if you're not going to pay them the same, then why, you know, unless it's just, I mean, it's different enough as it is. That's where I, I kind of stand. Okay. So I have made, I, I, I've definitely expressed this in the past. I don't know, you know, I don't know if I've ever like definitively stood up and said, "Okay, everybody gather around." My my official stance on this, but going back to like the Ed O'Bannon trial, uh, look, it's it's absurd at this point the level of, that we've reached in terms of the amount of TV money in particular that's coming in, and that the players don't see a dime of it. I would totally agree with that. 
I think that the easiest no-brainer thing is that they should definitely be cashing in on, you know, their share of, like, when it's their jersey that's on sale at the bookstore um, or anything else that's specific to their particular name, image, likeness, they should definitely be getting paid for that. I think it would be, at this point, perfectly reasonable to relax the rules on amateurism and say you can go out and sign as many uh, footballs and whatnot that people are willing to pay you to do. There, That is not an easy thing because there's definitely areas where you could uh, exploit that. Boosters could say, okay, I'm going to pay you, uh, you know, $50,000 to sign these footballs. But hey, if that's your market value, that's your market value. The Where I draw the line is I, I, there's no realistic scenario where the schools themselves would pay college athletes like a salary. That's just, it's at that point, it's not college sports anymore. Uh, they're employees. They're not students. Some people say, okay, that's already how it is. I get it. Well, that's a, that's a problem with, for the NCAA if they're considered employees. And obviously, it puts it in another... Uh, another messy situation. There's title, not huge title nine ramifications. Um, and I also just don't think you can force a school to do that. So I think there are plenty of ways for the athletes to be compensated and to be part of the, you know, massive revenue that's involved in college sports right now, uh, without it being such a, you know, straightforward, they're pro sports teams now and they have to pay their players a salary. Do you tend to shrug your shoulders when this topic comes up? Cause you know, it's so unwieldy. Not because of that. Um, I shrug my shoulders sometimes because there is a, a at least in our you know little universe where we follow on Twitter, a group of what I would describe as zealots about this, who just keep saying and writing the same thing over and over and over and over again. And you know, at the end of the day, like okay, I just expressed where I am on this, and where you and you expressed where you are on this. There have been many, many surveys done on this, and the majority of the public doesn't think they should be paid right it's not sometimes if you get lost on twitter you think it's like everybody but the ncaa thinks they should be paid um, much of the public still does believe that it's amateurism and they shouldn't be paid so there's that point but also this has been tested in the courts many times now and it will again and to this point over and over again the coach the courts have defended the model the closest they came to undoing it was o'bannon the original ruling in o'bannon uh, which her ruling would have allowed them to I mean she did she did say that the you kind of like written in stone ban on any compensation is an antitrust violation but then she put some caps on what they could actually pay them but under her scenario they were they could have set up trust funds and put licensing money into them I mean it would have been pay for play and uh, the appeal court struck that down so there have been other cases recently Lamar Dawson the recent uh, Lamar Dawson from USC? From USC. Did you, I don't know if most people know this. He sued... I don't want to get this wrong. I believe he sued USC and the NCAA basically for unfair labor practices, like that he should be paid overtime. He and other players should be paid overtime for all the hours they worked and, and such and such. And that got thrown out, you know, before it even could have proceeded through the, the process with the judge specifically saying they are not employees. There are all these precedents that say they are not employees so this doesn't even uh, apply so much to the chagrin of kind of the pay-for-play zealots like the courts keep saying sorry you're wrong maybe that will change with the next case like the jeffrey kessler case although even that case i'm getting a little yeah you guys you told here. me two minutes and now yeah. all of a sudden it's like the jeffrey kessler case was the follow-up to the o'bannon case it's it's 
proceeding through right now. And a lot of people thought, oh my God, this is going to be the game changer. Because he's not just suing for video game money. He's, he's basically suing for the whole thing. They should be paid. And after the O'Bannon ruling, they basically limited what he could actually ask for. Compensation tethered to educational expenses. So even that has been narrowed pretty narrowly. So uh, yes, we went beyond the scope of the question. Pat Murphy. Oh, remember we talked about, we had a question about whether there should be a group of five playoff. His suggestion actually is probably a lot more um, logical. Stuart and Feldman. First, the obligatory longtime mailbag reader. Love the podcast. Always have since the lost days. Thank you. Had that lost podcast way back when. I can't be the only one to have thought of the perfect solution to the group of five tournament problem. They should just stage a first four tourney in early December with the winner getting that berth to the New Year's Six Bowl. I think football fans would watch that. I agree. I think he's right. Okay, Grant Shumpert. Hey, Bruce and Stu. Love the podcast. My question is about Butch Jones in 2017. I know Stu in particular has been pretty negative about Butch, and I tend to agree with his sentiment about going no better than 8-4 and four in 2015 and 2016. Is there a win total in 2017 you think definitely brings him back? Uh, if he wins nine or more again, I think it's hard for them to, to pull the plug. So to be clear, are you saying it could be nine and four or does that have to be nine and three before the bowl game? I think if he's, if he's nine and four, I don't know how you, you fire him. I, I don't see it. I mean, I, I disagree. You may be right. Look, the, what I come back to is, and this shouldn't be the, it shouldn't be the only metric, but the program is way in way better shape now than it was when he took over. Now it was in disarray when he took over, but I, I think if if you pull the plug at, when somebody goes nine and four and has won twenty seven games or twenty eight games in three years, I think that's your expectations are out of whack at that point. It's Tennessee. It's Tennessee is supposed to contend for conference, if not national championships. He hasn't come close to that so far with some really good recruiting classes. If they go nine and three in this regular season, which may well allow them to get to Atlanta. I think he comes back. But if okay. they go 8 eight and 4 and they're going back to the Liberty Bowl or something like that. He's if they go 8 and 4, you think he's definitely getting fired. Definitely getting fired. New AD, John Curry, he knows what the expectations are there. He knows you're not supposed to be losing to, you know, shootouts to Vanderbilt. Right. 8 and 4, he won't be back. Coaches have gotten fired for going 9 and 3 recently. We know that. But yeah. I don't I that one is harder for me to see. Johnny She brings up something I mentioned on the podcast, and I just want to clarify it when I said that I mentioned that roughly 50% of quarterbacks seem to be transferring these days. He says, I don't know if that's based on true raw data or generalization. Could you look into that? Well, I actually did the research in February. This was all four- or five-star quarterbacks. I can't remember the time period I did it over. It went pretty far back. And yes, 50% of them do not end their career at the school they started at. It's pretty amazing, don't you think? It is, but this is the era we're in. Plus, guys get to be on TV wherever they go. I thought it was interesting, one of the explanations that I got um, from the people who do Elite 11, which is they become friends on that circuit. They all become friends on that Elite 11 circuit. Then with, with social media, with Twitter and Instagram, Facebook, they're in touch with each other constantly. They know exactly what's going on in, in their lives. They know which ones have won the starting jobs as a true freshman and whatnot, and they say, well, if he can do it, why can't I? 
Well, even more to that, a lot of these guys now, uh, I bet you Malik Zaire spending all that time in Arizona with Dennis Guile saw at least a dozen FBS starting quarterbacks who came through there at some point this this offseason. So they are seeing each other a lot. And it's not, you know, those relationships are keep keep growing and growing. And social media lends itself to in ways that you, when you and I were students didn't exist. Here's a really good one from Joe Owens. Hey, Stuart and Bruce. If Tim Brando has proved right. <laughs> is this a Notre Dame question or is this a yep. political question? Or is this like the NBA final should be wiped off the, t- off the t- <laughs> TV altogether? If Tim Brando has proved right and Notre Dame became a full member of the ACC, would it change your consensus opinion that they are the only king to not have a realistic, realistic shot at winning the national championship? Do you think if Notre Dame were to join the ACC as a full member that that would improve their chances of winning a national championship? No, I don't think it would. I honestly don't think it would have much bearing at all. I agree. Just don't think that model is going to work in this day and age. I have a Tim Brando question for you. Uh oh. <laughs> if you were t- connected to Tim Brando in some capacity, family member, agent, would you want Tim off Twitter for his own sake? No, I, I would never. I would never wish anybody off of Twitter. Not I, wish him off Twitter. I'm saying for his own. You know, there's no better Brando than Brando hating the NBA. I mean, you work with Tim, like, you've called games with him, you've been on the road on Friday nights. When he tweets, like, that the NBA... What exactly has he been saying about the NBA recently? That it's... It's unwatchable, and he hates the finals, and he hates that it's all built up to this, you know, final matchup. When the game got really... Do you have any idea what that is based on? Because most people... And and look, I'm not a... I don't watch the NBA that closely, but even I will concede, like... It's a really good product right now. Yes, the playoffs have been boring and, and are proving to be anticlimactic, but you know, in terms of like the style of play and the superstar players, that this is probably the most exciting time in the NBA since in a long time. I really think Tim longs for a day when it was the the era of the short shorts with John Stockton. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I I I love Tim. I cannot explain Tim, but I am fascinated by Tim's. My yet. here's my theory. And, and we'll see if maybe he'll weigh in on Twitter and respond to us. I have noticed that the talking head shows on both ESPN and FS1 throughout the day, even long before the finals, the NBA has become their bread and butter. Not as much as the NFL during NFL season, but pretty much year-round, they are always talking about, is LeBron better than Jordan? Uh, you know, Whatever latest controversy happens in the NBA, is that what he's responding to? It might be. Look, Tim had three-hour show every day for I don't know how many years. And I think he was so used to opining now that whoever's around him in his orbit, and that includes anybody on social media who follows him, gets the brunt of Tim now because he just needs that outlet. He's venting. I just love that there have been multiple occasions where Tim has said out of frustration, that's it. I am done engaging with people on Twitter. This is the last you'll see of this. And two days later, he's back to engaging with people on Twitter. We're, the next time we have Tim on, I'm going to tell a a really, really good story about Tim and social media that he doesn't know about that I'm going to own up to. It'll, I'll eat some crow on it, but uh, we'll have him on. Can you vow to the listeners that Tim will come on, that you will get Tim to come on by the end of the month? Yes, I can vow. I can vow All to right. the listeners. 
look forward to that, everybody. Hey, I have another question for you. What percentage of the people you follow have you muted? A uh, very low percentage. Under 5%? Yeah, probably. I mean, definitely people I've muted, but not... Is it because of politics or just they go too much on Twitter? They're just too active. Oh, there's a lot of different scenarios. It's not always the same thing. And but basically the reason I have to mute is that, you know, I think Twitter etiquette at this point is you you can't unfollow people like that's an insult to unfollow. It somebody. Is. And and it they is. might advertise that. Hey, oh, my God, they have unfollowed me. I, I know, you know, you see sometimes people advertise that. Oh, look, I got blocked by this person. You get a lot of like, oh my gosh, Darren Ravel blocked me. And then they can screenshot it and show it to people. So you just mute them. Wait, you your question was specifically people I follow, right? Yes. Yeah, that's less than 5%. But I certainly have muted a lot of people. Oh, I'm not talking follow. about muting people like, yeah, that that's... What's that's your a... threshold for that? What would cause you to mute somebody you don't follow? Um, if I see... This actually happened yesterday um in the wake of the oklahoma stuff i just saw like two different people were having an, an argument or a conversation on neither one i know and I, it's just my way of saying i just don't just take it out of my app mentions i'm not trying to be a jerk about it i just like i don't want to see you know seven posts in a row from something that has nothing to do with me from somebody i don't know that's and the so- number that is the number one reason i mute people if they just like start flooding me flooding my mentions and with those and then yeah like when people get into an argument with each other off something I tweeted. And, and actually, it used to be you could you could take the person off of that. But now you can't. You literally, in the new Twitter function, once you start replying, that person gets tagged throughout. So um, that's a word of advice to the listeners. Don't, don't get me involved in one of those. Uh, lastly, Chip Minnick from Avon Lake, Ohio, with an Athlon Top 50 question. And I think it's a good one because we never mentioned this guy's name. I was curious about the omission of Rocket Ishmael from the Athlon Top 50 list. I realized that he did not win the Heisman, but he was a contributor to Notre Dame's last national championship team in 1988 and arguably the most dangerous kickoff or punt returner during his college career. One could argue comparable to players such as Johnny Rogers or Desmond Howard, both of whom made the list. Did Rocket Ishmael merit your consideration? He did, but I didn't include him. Um <sighs> You know, there was like there was lots of guys who were like just huge big play guys at the end of the day, you know, where you're like, you can't have everybody. You know, I went back and looked at his stats. Um, you know, he was a I he was not necessarily a running back. He wasn't like, you know, I look back and this is now I'm looking at it now because I knew he didn't have many. He had four career touchdowns as a receiver. He had nine touchdowns in his in his whole time from scrimmage. I mean, if that's the case, I would I would have really considered Devin Hester too, and I didn't. That was exactly the name I was thinking of, Devin Hester. That would be like putting Devin Hester on the top fifty list. Is Rocket Ishmael one of the fifty most exciting players of the past fifty years? Quite possibly. You know, it was really exciting. We forget he put up crazy big numbers uh, not that long ago. Denard Robinson. Denard Robinson was very exciting. Um, I think. Eventually, that wore off with people, and it was like, oh, he's not really, can't really pass, so this is wearing off. But yeah, like that first year in particular, extremely exciting. But I'm going to go with, can I just say three? I, yeah, I don't have like a number one. That would be Michael Vick, yeah. Reggie Bush, and Christian McCaffrey. All good choices. All good choices. So 
I don't think we said anything on this podcast that could turn out to be a prophecy, but we'll see. If so, we're leading some sort of charmed existence. But, uh, yeah, how about we just end the podcast with a quick salute to Bob Stoops, who we both worked with many times, covered many times. I know you did. Um, well, first of all, how do you feel about the fact that you personally handed him his last Big 12 championship trophy? Uh, yeah, Bob Stoops helped me in a way that he probably has no idea how he bailed me out in that. Obviously, I talked about how it's kind of a daunting setting for the first time for me to you know be on a mic in front of whatever, 90,000 people in the rain. And to, to get into a scrum of his players, many of which are 300-pound guys, I mean, he was the one who kind of made sure that it worked out, which in that setting, you know, I'm not sure how many head football coaches would think of, okay, we got to make sure the media guy does this this way and this way. So, um, I don't know. It was a, it was a favorable memory. I had uh, one, one quick stoop story I want to close on. So, you know, I always thought, you know, very contrarian. He's, he'd been good to me, but, you know, like it was kind of, I would say at his arm, arm's length. And uh, when I worked on Leach's book, this was in the time when realignment was getting, starting to heat up a little bit. Or there was a lot of rumblings about it, I think. And, you know, Leach gives me his number. Stoops is going to call me, everything. And I got a completely different Bob Stoops in that hour than I'd ever had. He was way more engaging. He was joking about a lot of different stuff. And I just remember thinking, I was like, man, I've never seen Bob Stoops like this. And I was tempted to, like, ask him some questions on my own unrelated to the Leach book. I'm like, no, that's not what this call is about. Um, But it was just very different to see that side of him compared to, you know, what you usually see in a podium or, you know, just – you know, different personality side. Yeah. And that gets back to what I said earlier with my example. Like if it was a topic that he was particularly engaged in, he could be as friendly and open with you as any other coach. It was the group settings and the, you know, tough questions after a loss. And sometimes even after a win where you didn't necessarily see that side of him. Uh, I, I think like a lot of these guys, you don't know what you got till it's gone. And you know, it's, there's going to be a huge void in college football, but in particular, I think in the Big 12. Right now, as I talk about it, really hard to picture the Big 12 without Bob Stoops. You don't know what you got till it's gone. Who Stu sang Mandel. that, verse? What 80s metal band had a big hit called Don't Know What You Got Till It's you Gone? You know I have no idea about metal. I know nothing about that, about that kind of music. No to our editor. I think you should close this podcast with Cinderella. Don't know what you got till it's gone. <laughs> As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com and please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get podcasts. We'll see you next time. Don't know what you got.